This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good evening, and welcome to the Australian Museum. My name is Sue, and I'm a creative producer here at the Australian Museum. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the Australian Museum stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. And welcome everyone to the final presentation in our first landmark human nature lecture series, a collaboration of four major universities with the Australian Museum and with academics from around Australia and the world who are leaders in the environmental humanities. The Australian Museum's collection provides a record of the environmental and cultural histories and diversities of the Australian and Pacific regions. Together with its ongoing research, the museum informs and promotes understanding of some of the most pressing environmental and social challenges in our region, including the loss of biodiversity, a changing climate, and the assertion of cultural identity. So in a sense, the past meets the future at the Australian Museum where our understanding is inspired by the research of our scientists and cultural specialists, by our exhibitions like the fabulous New Wales to Horror Show, and by events like this human, lecture, human Nature Lecture Series, through which we strive to investigate and communicate the relationship between people, culture, and the natural environment. Tonight's lecture, following the event, will also be available via the AM Live podcast. And we'll also be giving you a sneak preview of the 2019 series in which we welcome our fifth collaborator, the University of Wollongong. So we'll talk to you about that at the conclusion of tonight's session. But for now, to introduce our very special guest this evening, I'll hand over to Judy Motion, Professor of Communication in the UNSW Environmental Humanities. Judy. Good evening, everyone. I'd also like to begin by acknowledging and paying respect to the traditional owners and custodians of this land, sky, and waterways. We pay respect to elders past and present and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are present here today. We thank you. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome and introduce Professor Rob Nixon, who is a leading influential figure in the environmental humanities. He's internationally renowned for opening up and reconfiguring our notions of social and environmental justice. Rob Nixon holds the Curry C. and Thomas A. Barron Family Professorship in Humanities and Environment at Princeton University. He is the author of four books, most recently, Dream Birds, The Natural History of a Fantasy, and the one you're probably most familiar with, Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor, which has won numerous awards, including the American Book Award and the 2012 Sprout Prize for the International Studies Association for the Best Book in Environmental Studies. Professor Nixon, writes frequently for the New York Times. His writing has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly, The Guardian, The Nation, London Review of Books, The Village Voice, and the list goes on. 
Many of you will be familiar with Professor Nixon's work on slow violence, emphasising the need to recognise the gradual and often invisible ways that environmental crises are playing out. His focus on temporal and spatial concerns of environmental and social justice creates spaces for diverse voices to be heard and reminds us that we need to advance our ways of noticing and attending to these issues, to pay attention to the less immediate, the less spectacular. He positions activist storytelling and action at the heart of our creative responses for undoing injustice. Nixon's thought-provoking work is particularly focused on the relationship between accelerating rates of environmental change and rising rates of economic inequality. He is concerned with the disparities between how the rich and the poor experience climate change, how they suffer unequal, unequal exposure and the risks of a rapidly changing planet. Such issues, he believes, demand imaginative, ethical, technological and political responses. Please give a very warm welcome to Professor Rob Nixon, whose talk tonight is entitled Environmental Martyrdom and the Fate of the Forests. Uh, thank you, Judy, so much. Uh, um, Judy Motion has done the heavy lifting to get me here. And thanks, too, to Sue uh, for making me feel so welcome. And to all the institutions, um, University of New South Wales, Macquarie, University of Western Sydney, uh, University of Sydney, um, and, of course, the museum. Uh, I'm, I'm honoured to be part of this uh, wonderful series. I've, I've followed it and, uh, and was very excited to be, to be included. Um, I also, on a more personal note, I wanted to um, express my delight that I was able to uh, visit Sydney um, at a time when my sister, who's lived in Epping for many uh, decades with her partner, was, uh, got married, and so they're wife and wife as of this week. Um, and uh, so a shout out to, to Ruth Orcherson and Carol Boland and to everybody who's been able to get married this past year and into the future, and to everybody who voted in the referendum uh, uh, in, in order to bring Australia up to speed. So um, I'm going to be talking today about uh, environmental martyrdom and the fate of the forests. And there, there are five questions that animate uh, the talk. The first is, what is the relationship between the figure of the environmental martyr um, the sacrificial figure of the environmental martyr and the environmental sacrifice zones that have proliferated under neoliberal globalization. And by sacrifice zones, I mean those, those virtual set-asides of concentrated violence uh, and imposed lawlessness in which all our lives are implicated. Uh, the second question is, what it, how, does the, how does a corpse become an environmental body? What are the complex cultural and political processes whereby that metamorphosis takes place? The third animating question is what is the relationship between environmental martyr and the movement? And if we think of martyrdom more broadly 
if we think of figures like Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Emily Davison, the British suffragette who threw herself under the king's horses. Um, what is the relationship in each uh, case between the iconic figure of the martyr and a more generalized suffering or a more generalized affliction? The fourth question is, how does the environmental martyr mediate between the living and the dead? and also mediate between the human and the more than human, the human and the ecological, if you like. Uh, and finally, I wanted to, to, to think a little bit about the, uh, the very deep, long tradition that spans centuries and many cultures of conceiving of humans as trees and conceiving of trees as human. We're both erect, often long-living, social, uh, beings. Um, and in particular, in relation to environmental martyrdom, I want to ask what is the relationship between the fallen martyr and the felled tree? I want to dedicate uh, the talk today to the memory of Berta Cáceres, a Honduran uh, environmental activist, defender of rivers and forests uh, from the Lenca tribe in Honduras, who was a winner of the premier environmental uh, prize, the Goldman Prize, uh, in, in uh, 2015, and was assassinated uh, six months later after a successful campaign to protect the river and the forests against uh, hydroelectric dams. So why forests? Um, we're currently losing forests at the, at the, a forest area the size of Italy every year. There is some regrowth as people urbanize in, in North America and parts of Latin America. Uh, there is some return of forests, but the overall pace is one of steep decline. And forests are significant for more, more reasons than I can, I can lay out in a, in, a, in a brief talk. But one of the reasons is that um, they are responsible for 30% of, um, as, as a carbon sink, 30% of all terrestrial um, absorption of, of CO2 uh, uh, occurs in, in the forest. Moreover, if we take a different angle on it, 18% um, of all, all uh, CO2 emissions result from uh, the felling and burning of forests, which is the equivalent to the emissions that come from the entire transportation sector. So cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships. So it's an area where if we can, if we can even slow the rate of deforestation, we can make an enormous difference in terms of um, decelerating climate change. So in thinking about these questions, I was also concerned about the, the concentration of environmental martyrs in the, what we might call the environmental martyr belt, the, the, uh, the sort of tropical countries that girdle the midriff of the globe. So we can see here uh, countries like Honduras, Colombia, Brazil, uh, Congo, India, um, Indonesia, Philippines, and so forth. So there's a very, been a very, very high concentration of assassination of activists, uh, particularly forest activists, but all also mining activists in these areas. 
Um, and I was beginning to think that, that um, the, a purely secular approach was insufficient given the uh, religious and cosmological complexity of these areas. And so I was trying to articulate the question of uh, neoliberalism as a global system to questions of, of spirituality and how these play out both in activist movements and also in the artwork associated with them. Um, Tanahisi Coates is an African-American writer, um, has a quote that I think is quite resonant for this context. Racism is a visceral experience that dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. And Coates is talking here specifically about the Black Lives Matter movement, but uh, I think his words also resonate for uh, the indigenous struggles and the struggles of micro-minorities in these uh, uh, heavily forested societies in the tropics. And I think it also speaks more broadly to the place of the arts and the humanities in relation to the life sciences and the social sciences. How can we, we give those graphs and charts and regressions, how can we give them a bodily gravity and bring them into the realm of emotional experience? Now, I should say at the outset that I'm just pulling in one thread with these forest struggles. And uh, Audre Lorde, uh, almost 50 years ago, African-American uh, activist and writer, said there's no such thing as a single-issue cause because we do not live single-issue lives. And so the fate of the forest is uh, inseparable, really, from uh, struggles for land rights, struggles for water security, food security, and so on. They're, they're very entangled um, conflicts. So as I, as I just suggested, I'm interested in the interface between the systemic and the spiritual, what you might call neoliberalism and the numinous, and how can we think about systems and also think about uh, cosmologies uh, at the same time, economic systems and cosmologies. And one of the things that prompted me to start uh, reflecting on this was this, uh, a flurry of films uh, about environmental martyrs um, there's, uh, Chico Mendes, who many of you may know, was uh, assassinated in the late 80s in uh, Brazil, Martyr of the Amazon, uh, Martirio, which is a recent Brazilian film on uh, the uh, genocide against the Guarani uh, in, in Brazil uh, in the 80s. Ken Sarawiwa was uh, a Nigerian activist, uh, really the first prominent uh, African environmental writer who was uh, executed by the Nigerian government in, in 1995 for leading the protests against Shell and the, the despoilation of the Niger Delta. Um, and uh, Jurin Rachapol uh, is a defender of mangrove forests in Thailand. Both uh, Ken Sarawiba and Rachapol uh, were involved in the defense of mangrove forests in delta regions. So the mangrove forests were constitutive really on the cultural survival of both of these communities. Uh, and there are some very strong analogies between uh, their, their activism. 
Then I started out by mentioning uh, Berta Cáceres, is a film, Guardians of the River, uh, on her, the struggle of her and her Lenca people uh, to defend the forested river that was, is sacred uh, to them. Uh, and then uh, Toxic Amazon, fighting for the rainforest can still get you killed, focuses on a couple, Maria Santo and Zé Claudia Ribeira da Silva, who uh, were, agri were agroforesters uh, living off Brazil nuts. And one of their ambitions was to demonstrate that they could live off one Brazil nut tree, an enormous Brazil nut tree, uh, which they did. And they were trying to model for others uh, a sustainable livelihoods in the Amazon. And the way they paired up was when they encountered or heard of illegal logging, um, Zé Claudia would accost the loggers and uh, Maria would take the photographs. Uh, and the film is a record of their activism in life and ultimately uh, their assassination. On the other side of the earth, um, there's a, a Cambodian activist called Chatwuti who took it upon himself also to document uh, the illegal logging in the uh, in, in, um, Prelang Forest, the major forest in Cambodia. And he too uh, sought to, to create as, as textured a photographic record as he could of this, of this process. And so one of the things you see in, in the Brazilian case, in Cambodia, in Honduras, is that the, very often the people who are meant to uphold the law uh, are the breakers of the law and the people who are seen as, um, treated as illegal activists are those who are trying to, uh, in, 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 in their capacity as citizens, um, uh, actually implement existing laws that are, have become nominal in terms of the protection of the forest. So a film was made about I'm Chatfuti, with the forest we live, without the forest we die. And a focus of this film is resin collection, uh, so that uh, traditionally the indigenous communities in the Prelang Forest would uh, build uh, small fires in the resin trees, collect resin, and use the income from that to supplement their uh, bush tucker. Um, and so the felling of the resin trees uh, interrupted that many uh, sustainable livelihood of, of many generations. So I, I said at the outset that one of the things that I think the arts and environmental humanities does is uh, give, us, give us an embodied encounter with so many of these uh, globalized statistics that can, can otherwise seem very ac um, uh, abstract. Um, and if we step back a little bit from environmental martyrdom and think about martyrdom more broadly uh, and, and the kinds of scripts that we associate with, with martyrdom, uh, one, of, one of the resonant figures is, is Simone Weil, who uh, fled uh, France in World War II to England and uh, starved herself to death. In, uh, she basically tried to align her food intake with the intake of partisans in France uh, fighting fascism. And so it's a complex statement that she, she made uh, that I wanted to, to reflect on briefly, which is, death is the most precious thing that has been given to man. The supreme impiety is to make bad use of it. 
And what she's talking about here really is not, she's not advocating for martyrdom, but how do you ensure when you're pushed into a state of extremity that the unjust death is not a meaningless death? In other words, in conditions of involuntary martyrdom, what kind of leverage can you get for a cause out of those circumstances? And so it's, it's perhaps useful to think about different tempos of martyrdom here. Um, in Simone Weil's case, you have starvation. In the case of um, Guantanamo prisoners, you have starvation. Um, Bobby Sands and the IRA. Uh, one of the things about an attenuated death is that it provides a media script, a public narrative, which is why you have, say, force feeding in Guantanamo, because uh, that elongated storyline of suffering towards death um, provides a, a, a traction for the cause of the, of the martyr. Um, similarly, in the, when the Namada Dam, River with uh, large dams were uh, starting to be planned on the Namada River in India, um, various villages uh, formed what they called martyr squads or self-drowning team because entire villages and temples were being drowned and the surrounding forest land um, and people um, committed themselves to remaining in the river even when the, the dams, uh, until the dams uh, flooded their villages. So one of the, the things that recurs across uh, struggles that have involved martyrdom is accusations that um, the leaders in question have a martyr complex. We see this with Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and many others, even Nelson Mandela. Um, the idea that there's something grandiose, that the person in question, the political leader, is in some ways in love with death. And so these leaders have, who, who have been politically cornered by um, unrelenting authorities have repeatedly had to um, disavow the idea that they're voluntary martyrs, that they're embracing martyrdom. Uh, Gandhi put it this way, let us all be brave enough to die the death of a martyr, but let no one lust for martyrdom. Uh, in, a, in a similar vein, Chico Mendes, uh, the defender of rubber tappers and uh, indigenous rights in the Amazon, I don't want anybody getting killed. There's no point in me or any of my colleagues dying. I don't think that dead bodies solve anything. And I know that if that's the way things go, this place will become an inferno. I don't believe in bodies. So one facet of this is that Typically, these environmental martyrs uh, anticipate their death. In other words, they, they live in a kind of liminal state of uh, their final time on Earth and um, almost posthumously aware that they will be um, perceived as emblematic after their death. So Ken Sarawiwa sort of was warning the authorities and saying, I am more dangerous dead. Uh, this was a couple of months before they executed him. And his son put it this way, my father hadn't been able to reach or influence a wider audience with his writing, but in dying for his people, he scripted 
the most compelling story of his life. So martyrdom becomes a kind of an alternative script, an alternative writing, and the, and the word martyr uh, is rooted in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Greek uh, notion of, of witnessing. And so there's a double witnessing. There's the body that bears witness, and there's the witnessing of the, of the script. Uh, and uh, the philosopher Kostika Bradetan put it this way with regard to Socrates. Socrates may never have written a line, but his death is one of the greatest philosophical bestsellers of all time. Uh, so this idea of Socrates sort of curating, if you like, the story of his death in advance. So I mentioned at the outset that one of the, the animating ideas that got me thinking about this is the relationship between the exceptional iconic figure of the martyr and ordinary martyrdom. And six, six months before she was assassinated, when she was awarded the uh, Goldman Prize, Berta Kasserid uh, dedicated the prize uh, in this way. I dedicate this prize to the river, to the forest, and to all the other martyrs. Okay? Um, and the syntax here is, is ambiguous. Um, it's to all the other martyrs, the, the, the sense that there's a general martyrdom in this indigenous community. But also at the river and the forest. I mean, wh what, what, uh, to what extent do humans have a monopoly on martyrdom? And to what extent does martyrdom permeate into other life forms? And this question of, of, of quotidian or ordinary or, or paradoxically unexceptional martyrdom permeates many different struggles. This is in the Philippines, heroes and uh, vigil for heroes and martyrs of the mining struggle. Uh, in Colombia, um, local environmental week dedicated to the martyrs. Uh, I've seen uh, El Salvadorian t-shirts. Uh, the environmental martyrs, those who die defending their people are not dead. Um, and so there is, from one society to another, this, uh, this ambiguity uh, in terms of the relationship between the iconic figure and a broader movement among uh, precarious communities. So in thinking about uh, the cosmologies of, of, of spiritual cosmologies in relation to neoliberal globalization, one of the things that uh, is striking is the persistence of the dead, um, the paradox of assassination without elimination. The anthropologist Anat Singh put it this way, the dead too are part of social worlds. This is a vigil uh, for somebody who was assassinated before Berta Caceres. But the dead too are part of social worlds. How do we include or exclude the dead from our idea of society? John Berger, who spent most of his life uh, in peasant communities in France, uh, speaks very, in, a, in a very uh, resonant way about these issues. The living reduce the dead to those who have lived, yet the dead already include the living in their own great collective. Until the dehumanization of society by capitalism, all the living awaited the experience of the dead. It was their ultimate future. By themselves, the living were incomplete. Thus, living and dead were interdependent, always. Only a uniquely modern form of egoism has broken this interdependence with disastrous results for the living who now think 
of the dead as the eliminated. And I think a lot of the violence and the, the, the culture clash that occurs in these uh, sacrifice zones, these global sacrifice zones, um, has um, at its root these different uh, perceptions of the relationship between the uh, living and the dead. Uh, for those, those who, who exist in cosmologies where the dead are not eliminated versus an extractivist economy uh, for whom the dead are dead uh, and, and not a pertinent presence in the ecosystems that are being uh, raided. Uh, talking about Black Lives Matter, the uh, American critic Kimberly Bain reflects thus, the dead are all around the living, not just the already dead, but also the dying, the soon to be dead, the left for dead, and the marked for death. And so even in our biological lives, we are situated uh, in, in, in different ways in relation to the dead. Some, some are more proximate, some of us are more proximate, some of us are more walled off from the dead, and often it's a matter of class and privilege, but also of cosmology. Now, if we, if we looking through these films on environmental martyrdom, uh, one of the, the most striking recurrent uh, echoes across them is this idea of assassination in relation to the proliferation. Uh, in the case of Chatvuti and Cambodia, the film itself is called I Am Chatvuti, which became the, the uh, rallying cry of the movement to prevent illegal deforestation in the Prelang Forest. And the idea was that when, from the part of the authorities, when they assassinated the highly visible leader, Chatvuti, uh, they would behead the movement uh, and render it powerless. But instead, people um, uh, identified themselves with him. So it became the political tactic of a reiterative identification with the figure of the martyr. Similarly, in Honduras, um, here we have uh, Beta Caceres uh, and the incorporation of the, of the dead uh, into the community of the living or the community of the living into the figure of the dead who is not eliminated. Um, and uh, again, you have this proliferation of identification across uh, the indigenous communities. Uh, and when Vera Cáceres, although she was focusing on a struggle uh, um, in, in Honduras that affected most deeply her and directly her Lenca people, uh, her assassination reverberated across the Americas. And uh, this is a protest in Bogota, in Colombia. Uh, Siempre Vivas, uh, she, she lives on, uh, Berta Cáceres. And what's interesting here is, is the, the body, the use of the body as canvas. And uh, quite often in, in, in a number of Latin American situations, uh, people would uh, ink on the Virgin Mary on the back. That was a, a place where sometimes the Virgin Mary would appear in ink. And so there's a, also, um, a, in a sense, a transubstantiation of Berta Cáceres through um, the religious cosmology uh, into uh, somebody who has uh, an eternal presence. Um, 
And as with uh, Chatruti here, volvere uh, sere millones, we will become millions. This insistence on proliferation instead of elimination. This is uh, El Salvadorians um, supporting or pro pro uh, uh, commemorating her death. So one of the reasons Berta Cáceres was assassinated was she was leading a movement that had successfully got the World Bank and a variety of other Japanese, Chinese banks to divest from a project uh, that would have dammed the river and uh, destroyed their, their lands and livelihood. Uh, and so it was particularly apposite to have this um, battle between uh, remembrance and erasure uh, played out on the walls of the World Bank. Um, here's a, a Lenka woman uh, uh, commemorating her Berta uh, Cáceres' death, and uh, the, the translation is, she is present in the soul of our rivers and in the spirit of our birds. So if we think about assassination without el uh, elimination, we're also thinking about the relationship uh, the permeation of being between the human and the more than human, the belief that there are porous boundaries, not only between the living and the, the, the previously living or the dead, but also between the human and the more than human. Um, and indeed, environmental activism, I believe, uh, demands that we build bridges across cosmologies, that we find these points of connection uh, where the, these uh, often micro-minorities, indigenous groups, can uh, uh, align themselves, even if only circumstantially, uh, whether against uh, mining companies or deforestation. So at the outset, when I was talking about Tanahisi Coates and the, 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 the effort the, or, the, or the weight of the graphs and the statistics on the body, um, one of the things that's very striking in the, in the films and the artwork around deforestation is the intimacy between bark and skin. Um, and some of this is, is, is uh, presented in uh, figuration, and it's also there in the language as well. If we think in English, for instance, we talk about the crown of the tree, the foot of the tree, the limbs of the tree, the girth of the tree. We talk about people as rooted or rootless. There's a, there's a, um, there's a, a lot of dead metaphors uh, that have their origin in this connection between humans and trees. This is Julia Butterfly Hill, who spent 18 months uh, up a, a giant sequoia in uh, uh, Northern California in the late 90s. Um, and uh, she, t she writes very eloquently about her sense of entanglement with the tree the intimacy, and some damask uh, tabloid reporter went up there and said, how do you survive for 18 months without a boyfriend? Um, and she said, oh, I'm, I embrace the tree. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the, one of the things I should say about martyrdom is it's not only about assassination, but also uh, extreme suffering. And in the case of Julia Butterfly Hill, um, the logging company flew helicopters in to try to blow her out they blew her tent out and they tried to blow her out the tree. She was 250 feet up. Um, but this, this issue of, of the, the relationship between skin and bark um, uh, recurs again and again in these struggles. And this is from the, the Chipka movement in India in the 1970s, 
when uh, start, it became a, a, a transnational movement in the end, but it started with one village where the government, Indian government, had sold off a forest to a sporting company, I think it was to make cricket bats or something, um, and the villagers, they didn't have title deed to the forest, but ancestrally for many hundreds, possibly thousands of years, they had lived there. And the, the women in the village uh, formed these circles, these protective rings uh, with their palms against the bark. Um, and so one of the things you notice about this, and it's true of pretty much all the, the forest struggles, is tree hugging is a little bit of a misnomer because it, it makes sense to have the tree at your back and to be interacting with those who are assaulting you or uh, coming to, uh, to fell the tree. Um, this is an image of Zé Claudio de Ribeira da Silva, um, one of the agroforesters who was assassinated in uh, the Amazon. And this was an image taken about six months before he was killed. Um, and there's something about the posture um, of, of pride and amazement. Uh, many of you, I certainly do, uh, recall encountering as a child uh, a big tree uh, that you couldn't get your body around. Um, and it's also, there's this, this sense of the physicality of his relationship to the tree. This was the tree that sustained them for a year. Um, but it's also, in an anticipatory way, a prefigurative way, a posture of crucifixion of, uh, of uh, I think, sort of a physical almost recognition of the inevitability uh, that the loggers were going to come for them. So where do we take this? Uh, one of the things that I, I see over and over again is the relationship, the, the attempt to articulate small insurrections to large alliances. And if we look forward just uh, schematically to the year, say, 2050, it's projected that food demand will double. And if we double the cropland, uh, particularly uh, the sort of thing that's going on in the Amazon and Indonesia, uh, where you have palm oil, uh, soy, um, uh, mega ranches, if we double the cropland, uh, we will uh, impact most directly tropical forest. Uh, and that, in turn, will have a, have a snowballing impact on accelerating climate change. So there are, there are definitely ways in which the yield gaps can be, can be narrowed, and uh, cropping efficiency, reducing waste, and dietary shifts, and it already in many societies, those, some of those dietary shifts are taking place away from, um, from meat in particular. So, Something that, that I see again and again in these, these anti-deforestation movements is, is articulated by the, the novelist Amitav Ghosh when he says, how deeply mired we are in the great derangement, a conception of justice that excludes the claims of the non-human will be contested not in any human court, but by the earth itself. So the sense uh, that, that justice itself cannot be partitioned from the claims of the non-human uh, and that if we, if we continue to think that way, um, the, the effects will redound to our own disadvantage. Different regions of the world have, uh, activists have employed different strategy. Uh, something that has been quite prominent in Southeast Asia have been the ecology monks, 
Um, and so in a number of countries, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, um, uh, Sri Lanka, and elsewhere, um, monks try to slow deforestation by consecrating the trees, by inducting the trees into um, the, the, the monastic order. Um, here we have uh, some other ecology monks in Sri Lanka being confronted with the military, uh, robing the tree. And so, um, in a sense, this upgrades the severity of the assault on the tree, so that the man wielding the chainsaw confronts the choice not just of felling a tree, but of beheading uh, a martyr who is part of this religious community. Now, in East Africa and Southern Africa, from the outside, it would seem that environmentalism is primarily about megafauna, protection of megafauna. But from the inside, if we look at the histories of African environmentalism, uh, the, the central struggles have involved uh, uh, reforestation, the politics of trees in relation to the politics of topsoil retention, the politics of water, and trees are, are, have been the central, if you like, engine of um, environmental protest in Africa. And this is Wangari Mathai, who, uh, along with her Greenbelt movement in 2005, uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize. And again, you can see the, the, the iconography of the organic, if you like, the organic intellectual with her roots, uh, literally, in the, in the ground. And, uh, and, and the physical intimacy uh, between her and, and the bark. Uh, and over the, the duration of the movement, they've planted something like uh, 100 million trees across East Africa. And uh, using uh, tree planting as a, as a form of civic empowerment, particularly for rural women. Uh, the image here is of Chatwuti, and coming out of Cambodia, this movement called Not One More uh, has, has gained global traction. Uh, we're bringing together activists from across these, these forest struggles um, who have been strategized uh, for, for ways to, to push back, uh, to shore up their um, uh, resources and to push back against the forces uh, that are deforesting. Uh, Via Campesino, some of you may know, is something like 200 million uh, peasant farmers and indigenous people from four, 73 nations have banded together to defend land rights, uh, food sovereignty, and, uh, and associated deforestation. So I spoke a little bit about the connection between the individual tree and the individual human, but there's a, there's a collective story as well. And Mahatma Gandhi put it this way, what we are doing to the forests of the world is but a mirror image of what we are doing to ourselves. And the, the uh, street artist Pejak um, has this very powerful image of uh, free yourself. And one of the things that's striking here is the, the sort of individual, the collective experience of the individual self-destruction, um, attacking the environmental roots of the civic body politic. Um, and so much of the art of deforestation is linked to martyrdom and to a kind of species self-slaughter. And so one of the imaginative and emotional connections that recurs between people and trees is the idea of what is the relationship between, the, the, the forest is more than the sum total of the trees, 
and human society is more than the sum total of individuals? What is the civic web that connects us um, uh, to each other? And when there was illegal deforestation in public lands in Poland, uh, this, the, a group of uh, young mothers got together and produced a, a, a video that went viral called Polish Mothers on Tree Stumps. They were all um, suckling their infants on the, the, felled, the stumps of the felled trees. I think it's a very powerful image of environmental time, of the intergenerational connection uh, to trees uh, as, as a way of, uh, of a way of thinking beyond our own lifespans, uh, into beyond the, the electoral cycles, beyond the news feed, elongating time uh, in this very, very intimate, personal way. Chico Mendes said, at first I thought I was fighting to save rubber trees, then I thought I was fighting to save the Amazon rainforest. Now I realize I'm fighting for humanity. 30 years later, um, Berta Caceres uh, reiterates that statement with even more violence at its core. Giving our lives in various ways for the protection of the rivers is giving our lives for the well-being of humanity and of this planet. Our Mother Earth, militarized, fenced in, poisoned, a place where basic rights are systematically violated, demands that we take action. I want to close with a, an image, a quote and an image. This is a Bulgarian writer, Kapka Kasabova. What remains sacred if a sacred mountain becomes a super dump? I felt strongly that within my lifetime we may all become exiles, that we may all be robbed by devouring demons disguised as policy and industry, that we may all walk down some road carrying in plastic bags our memories of forests and mountains, clean rivers, This has been an Australian Museum podcast. 